0: Released in 1974, Chinatown is one of the greatest mystery films ever made from one of the best screenplays of all time, starring the great Jack Nicholson. Forget it, Jack. It's Chinatown. Hello movie friends, welcome to Raiders of the Lost podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast, and today we're discussing an all-time classic in film history, Chinatown, directed by Roman Polanski, starring Faye Dunaway and the one and only Jack Nicholson in one of his greatest performances of all time. This is one of the greatest L.A. movies, as well as one of the best crime investigation mysteries of all time. And just one of the best movies of all time. In my greatest movie list, I put it at number 21. Nice. Remember like a year ago we did that, oh, which yeah, was super fun, our own individual videos. I don't remember where you put Chinatown, probably like top 50, I'm sure. It was, uh, it was up there, yeah. Yeah, but it's also, yeah. it boasts one of the best screenplays, if not the best screenplay of all time, which we'll talk about in a little bit of why it's regarded as that by the majority of the film community. I took... In a couple of my film classes, the teacher taught Chinatown as the structural format of a perfect screenplay. It's taught around the world in terms of how precise it is and what it does for its story. And it was written by Robert Town. It's an original screenplay. It's fictional, obviously based loosely on real events of The Water Wars. In Los Angeles, that actually happened, so there was a ton of real corruption in this city. Probably still is a little bit, but that's oh, obviously yeah. what ended. built this city as well, in addition to the oil, that which we talked about in the There Will Be Blood episode. Directed again by Roman Polanski, and starring Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, and John Huston, who was a regular and classic noir films, as well as the father of Angelica Huston, who... Jack Newcastle was dating at the time. He was also the father of Danny Houston. Oh, that's right. And the grandfather of Jack Houston. You've seen Danny Houston in a ton of movies. Jack has had a slowly building career. He was most notably in Boardwalk Empire and played a couple of uh, pretty big lead roles in movies. But Danny Houston has had a really terrific career. Their father, I mean, his Danny's father, John Houston, um, he was also a director. He directed quite a few films And not so much of, like, an actor-director, but he directed a lot of films that he didn't even act in. So, very talented guy, and really seals home one of the greatest villains in history of cinema. I mean, this is, like, a character that is rarely ever talked about when people make lists of great villains. Yeah, so he plays Noah Cross, and Danny Houston, if you've just heard the name... Recently, he was the villain, one of the villains in Wonder Woman. Yes, not not the he's not Ares, but he's the uh, the Nazi guy. Yeah, he's been. You've seen him in a ton of stuff. Children of Men. I mean, so many things. Now, Chinatown, in addition to having one of the best screenplays, if not the best screenplay of all time, is highly regarded by critics all around the world. It's an 8.2 on IMDb, which I think is pretty damn low because that only puts it at number 135 on the uh, 156. I'm sorry, on the all time. User rating list. It won one Oscar off 11 nominations. Damn, 11 nominations. Like Damn, you said 11 before, nominations. The episode, before the episode lost to The Sting. Yeah, The Sting won seven. 99% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> 93% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. As well as on a budget of $6 million. It grossed $30 million globally. And like I said, just one of the greatest, most loved films of all time. Quick little synopsis. Love, Let's hear it, man. Chinatown. When a Los Angeles private eye, J.J. Jake Gittes, is hired by a woman named Evelyn Mulray to investigate her husband's activities, he believes it's just a routine infidelity case. However, Jake's investigation soon becomes anything but routine when he meets the real Mrs. Mulray and re- realizes he was hired by an imposter. Her husband's sudden death sets Giddis on a tangled trail of corruption, deceit, and sinister family secrets as Evelyn's father becomes a suspect in the case. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> <laughs> and film noir was obviously a huge genre in early film days, 40s, 50s, and a little bit in the 60s, and this is a film that basically went back to its roots, now with great color photography, anamorphic lenses, Panavision uh, cameras in, in film. And technicolor, st- Yeah, all technicolor, that. so it was just the highest quality medium of film in its time. To really tackle that genre and that time period again, but with this new technology, and it really is really one of the best-looking films of the 70s. Uh, I love the cinematography of this, of this film because Polanski does all anamorphic. We, He can fit so much in the frame from end to end. You can also get a lot of subjects in focus, uh, and also there's some great handheld work in this film that works perfectly for the sequences, some excellent stunts, but all in all, it's just a very controlled, tight, uh, tightly filmed uh, movie that if you watch it a lot and, and enough times you can really basically kind of study it as a way of learning how to make a film because he, Polanski he does everything right and every choice every decision whether it be with the cinematography sound design the editing is terrific and then uh, uh, performances in this film are some of the best of the decade for sure Fate Dunaway is really fantastic Houston is excellent but Jack Nicholson One of the greatest actors of all time. This is definitely one of his better roles. And something that obviously comes up in his filmography is possibly the best film he ever did. But in the 70s, he was absolutely on fire. And this role was really important and instrumental to him building his career. He had already already been nominated for Five Easy easy Pieces before this. Uh, But Jack was a huge rising star, and he actually turned down The Godfather to star in this film. And I saw this interview he did. Someone interviewed him in like the 80s, and they're like, how do you regret turning down The Godfather? He's like, well, I think Chinatown's a pretty great movie. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, no, I don't regret it at all. (laughs) And so I I suppose that the 70s couple of movies really take um, the zeitgeist by storm, whether it be The Godfather movies and uh, maybe the first Star Wars and a couple of other films and movies like this, which are also on the same tier, they kind of maybe get a little forgotten or in comparison to the godfather maybe reduced but in make no mistake this is one of the greatest film of the, one of the greatest films of the 70s and the 70s is probably the best cinematic decade of all time yeah i agree and the the shadow that the godfather and the godfather part 2 casts over so many great films It's pretty dark and pretty big, (laughs) and it's tough to get shown. Even though this is a perfect movie, it's a masterpiece in every sense of the word. It's an absolute clinic in directing from Roman Polanski. Clinic in acting, everything about it is sensational. And just to stay on the camera work for a little bit, cinematography is done by... John Alonzo, who was a documentary filmmaker, and so the way he lit this was really unique. You know, he lit it kind of like how he would light his documentary sequences when obviously interviewing people, so that was kind of like a new way of lighting or an unheard of way of lighting for a feature-length film like this. So I think that added a great strength to it because I think the lighting in this movie is terrific. Cinematography, like you said, the wide anamorphic lens is helps the story so much in this movie because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of characters in the same shots a lot of times in a lot of different scenes. There's layers. Yeah, and what this does with these anamorphic wide lenses, you get a large depth of field. You can get a lot of things in focus in the background and foreground, so you can have a shot with five characters. Maybe some people are in the hallway, and Jake's in the room that the camera's in, but the other people in the hallway are still in focus, and they're all still in this wide shot. So I think it really helps tell the story and the narrative of this film with the characters. And they put the camera right up to people's faces. That makes sense that he was a former documentarian, cinematographer, and filmmaker, because you, there was a there's a quality to the camera work in this film where they just bring it right up to an actor's face, and it's just to the point where they're not getting warped because of the anamorphic lens, and it just films weren't really being made like that at that time. And someone who I think that really compounded on that approach to cinematography would be Emmanuel Lubezki, who has filmed a lot of Iñárritu films and Quaron films, but Iñárritu and Terence Malek really let Lubezki get the camera right up to people's faces, and it will warp them a little bit, but it gets you, like, it's like this personal touch to the filmmaking and blocking with the actor where it's, especially in this era where wides and medium wides were mostly prominent prominent in films and there was always like a, a good amount of distance between a character and the actual audience for majority of films in this film you're right up on jack's face a lot of the time fade Dunaway a lot of the time and so i really like the personal quality of the cinematography and i adore the music to this film this like sexy jazz saxophone it's beautiful adds so much intrigue and mystery capturing the essence and sounds of the classic film noir era it was done by Jerry Goldsmith, who ironically also did the other <laughs> great LA mystery film, LA Confidential, also it's Alien, an Alien, and, and won an Oscar for Mulan in 1999. Oh, wow. Great composer, but I, I adore the the music to this film, and it's it's actually rem- reminiscent a lot of I think for Taxi Driver, even though the, yeah, having the it. brass, the sexy yeah. saxophone sequences, obviously that makes me think of that as well. But I adore the music, and I absolutely love the opening credits to this film just a classic credit roll get every name in there with this beautiful music and the design it looks like it's from silent film from the 30s 20s and 30s and i think that artistically and aesthetically this movie is perfect in every single way and that's a great way to open it and it's such a wonderful los angeles film and if you live in los angeles it's, because I, I watched this film many times before we moved here, and now when I watch this film, I'm like, oh my god, I used to live, like, right there. Echo Park Echo Lake. Park, what? Are you kidding the me? The boat's it's, still there. You, my old, still, yeah, you still do that. <laughs> it's my old neighborhood. It's crazy. And, then, and I spend a lot of time in Chinatown, too. The Chinatown in L.A. is actually surprisingly small. They do make it look pretty big in the film and in other films that shoot here uh Rush Hour 2 actually Rush Hour 4 they have a huge Chinatown sequence that chase sequence on the rooftops and stuff that was filmed in the LA Chinatown and it actually Rush Hour 4 hasn't even been made Rush Hour no Lethal Weapon 4 sorry <laughs> Lethal Weapon 4 Lethal Weapon 4 <laughs> sorry when they're chasing uh, Jet Li around um the Chinatown in LA is actually quite small there there's really one main boulevard and that's not even that long but there are, it is uh, a cool place and they have lots of shops and there's even a little shopping mall uh, little restaurants here and there uh, it's not as big as you would think it is but they did a terrific job of making it feel really big in the sequences that were in chinatown but i mean just la is a really big city and this film traverses the landscape of the city and all aspects of it and i like the history of it because this is before the valley was implemented into la as, as part of L.A. The story, because yeah. it takes place in 1937, I remember? Exactly. So Los Angeles is, it, this at this point in time, it was just like Los Angeles, like the Hollywood surrounding areas, and then the hills wasn't even Los Angeles. And then above that, which is now called the Valley, Studio City, Sherman Oaks, North Hollywood, Van Nuys, these are now part of L.A. You would call, it, you if you're in Van Nuys, you'd say I'm in L.A. But in this film, that geography wasn't even part of LA at the time, and so obvious. Obviously, we learned through the course of the film. Part of the plans is by combining those areas into the city to integrate the water system into it. So I like the history of how the city actually was built and formed, and and obviously greed and corruption is prevalent throughout the entire course of the film. And ultimately, it, on the surface, it seems like corruption and greed would be the is the is the theme of the film, but. I believe the theme of Chinatown is inevitability, inevitability and Chinatown being the title. It's basically representative of, for example, Jack's personal history with Chinatown. Not that he's not the film's not saying Chinatown is a bad place. It's a it's a place where uh, bad things happen and where you meet your end when you're trying to do something. You're trying to serve justice. You always find. The inevitability of dealing with corruption, of dealing with those who are really in power, and how there's really nothing you can do to stop things or to actually change things for the better. So, the inevitable law, uh, hand of law, Jack in this film, Jake in this film, inevitably can't do anything and there's no way of really doing anything that can benefit the society it's a terrific choice for a title because it's like you said it's not saying chinatown's bad and it's not even saying that chinatown is the cause of events or the end of events chinatown chinatown and what it means in this film isn't a location it's a theme it's like you said inevitability but also bad luck chinatown sure. means bad luck especially to Jake, especially to anyone who worked in Chinatown. If you're a police officer, obviously, we have hints, and we learned that Jake was a former police officer, potentially detective before he went on his own, became a PI. But Chinatown has always meant failure and bad luck to J.J. Giddis. That's why he doesn't like talking about it. He doesn't like talking about Chinatown in his past. We get little bits and nuggets of information, brilliant screenplay writing of what happened in Chinatown. We know that he was trying to protect somebody, ended up being the cause of why they got hurt. Similarly to this film, in the third act of this movie, he obviously, again, got involved with a woman back then, which is, uh, we don't even get exposition about that. We just get one line from from the detective from Escobar saying, you never learn, do you, Jake, when they're in the back, back of the car and he wants to go bring, supposedly, uh, Evelyn out by himself. You never learn, meaning he always gets involved with the woman in the cases that he's involved in. And so Chinatown... Technically, the title doesn't refer to a place. It just refers to, like Anthony said, inevitability of corruption, of failure, bad luck, and also Jake unable to be a hero in his own story ever. Mm -hmm. He always loses, and that's a great character trait to him where throughout this entire film, he's trying to be this hero. He's trying to save the day. His arrogance, his hubris, his vanity takes over all of his actions because he wants to be the guy. He thinks that I'm smarter than everybody. I'm five steps ahead. I figured it out. I'm going to save Evelyn. I'm going to take down Noah Cross, and I'm going to do it all by myself, when ironically, he can't do either. Yeah, and then Noah Cross in this film represents the idea that there's only so much you can do, and the average person in, in one man and one woman will never be able to change things because no matter what happens, uh, societies and... Cities, in this case, and even entire countries are under the control of those who are in power and those who really have the money. And that's ultimately all that matters at the end of the day, and there's nothing you can do about it. This movie's about power as well. I mean, power not only in resources, Los Angeles water, wealth, power, land, power, but also the power of truth. Whoever holds the truth in this film holds the power. And not only is that in Noah Cross's benefit because he knows everything that's going on, even says that great line to Jake you think you know what you're in, getting involved in, and you think you know what's going on, but you have no idea. You're in way over your head, basically, even though Jake wouldn't admit that. And also, the power balance between Evelyn and Jake, whoever has the truth on their side, has power, just like Jake thinks he has the truth on his side for the majority of the film. He thinks he solved it. He thinks that, oh, this is a classic noir story. This is a femme fatale. This is a... Mm. Uh, a sultry woman who's going to be the romantic interest of our lead character. Obviously, she's a femme fatale so she'll be the antagonist at the end. She's going to be the villain behind everything. We're going to spook everybody. But then, what's Polanski and town do with the film? They flip that classic trope on its head. She's not a femme fatale. She's actually the hero. She's a good person. And a victim. And a victim as well yeah. of her father. And Jake obviously realizes it too late in that great scene they have obviously at the house later on in the film when he's telling him Her that i figured it out you're you've done this whole thing you're part of everything and then she reveals the truth to him the power shifts dramatically between them two but again the truth power lies with whoever has the truth in this film i think yeah and polanski was a he's a very provocative filmmaker and i love the way that they open the film the first shot is a series of photographs being flipped through of two people having sex and it's like in 74 to have your film open with that shot is just like really fantastic and uh still like pushing the boundaries of the medium and for like, mainstream film what it would show on screen and i thought it was a really terrific way of showcasing exactly who Geddes is with just an image and we and we get a sense for who the character is and what he does for a living in a matter of 20 seconds with hardly any dialogue and it's just a terrific way to open the film and Combine that with the ending of the film, the loss, the failure. Once again, it's a terrific way to open and, and, and end the film. This opening scene gives us all the characterization for JJ we need from the dialogue as well as his physicality, his wardrobe, his style. We learn a lot. Not only is he seemed like a reliable guy because he's talking to this guy, Paulie. Hey, like, hey, <laughs> 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 like I'm not gonna charge you for these photos. I just, I just, you know, you hired me. I know you don't have the money, you can owe me some other way basically, he's, he's being like a friend, but at the same time, he's really well dressed, the style of this movie is incredible, you can tell this guy, the way he talks, he's new to wealth, he's new to having money, He dresses himself really sharp. You know, he fits into a fluent society, even though when he speaks, he doesn't necessarily always fit in a fluent society. He's constantly apologizing sometimes for his vulgar language, especially in front of women, which is just something that he can never give up because he's from the streets. He's lower class, but now he's like up and integrating into upper class society. But the dialogue of him just trying to be a good guy, a good friend, as well as when the fake imposter, Miss Mulray, comes in to hire him to spy on her husband mr mulray she thinks he's having an affair you know at first he's like oh no way really of course uh, yeah it's terrible because <laughs> this is all he's he's in for he's same like same he, thing over. he loves his job he makes good money but he's kind of getting sick of it and at the same time he'd rather not do it again he tries to talk her out of it because he probably is more interested in in better cases and more big cases that's why he's becomes obsessed with this case because of this corruption, the water corruption that he's so infatuated by it because he thinks I'm going to be a big hero. I can solve this case, this big, finally a case that I care about rather than just the typical adultery, infidelity. And so I think we got, like you said, plenty of characterization in the first five minutes of this opening scene for him. And also the lieutenant says, hey, you look like you're doing well for yourself. So clearly he's risen into you know a more comfortable position in terms of his the success of his career but also he's the kind of person who can afford to get his face shaved at a barber shop every day instead of shaving it himself you know that's a different kind of class where if you don't even shave yourself that's a really good indication for someone's um status in society where i don't even shave someone shaves me my face for me. And that's another step of, of, of just like a great character detail. You know, that goes back all the way to ancient Rome. People really? getting their faces shaved and they didn't even use any shaving cream or anything oh back God. then. So they, you just go to get your face shaved and they're like, all right, hold still. Did you know they had to-go restaurants in Rome? Did they really? Oh? They had, They would be It would be the same thing we have today. It would just be like, real quick. It would just, <laughs> just, it would just be a little shop and it would be like a counter with different pots of the things they served. And then they had paintings or like tile ceramic artwork done of like chicken and then like a cow or whatever whatever they served it they would be a picture of the animal and then people would get in line grab their tray of food and get what they wanted and then pay the cashier just like mcdonald's it's crazy (laughs) now let's get back into chinatown now and then what i love actually connection is like you get to see some old school ways of uh investigating yeah i love how he, he puts the stopwatch uh underneath just a, no, just a pocket watch underneath the, the wheel of a car so that when he backs up, he can un- Giddies will know when exactly Hollis left that area. And I'd love to just get into other reasons why, like we've been talking about, this is the best script of all time probably. And I think first of all, the incredible mystery that not only starts small, but expands and expands and gets so huge and elaborate and complex that they don't reveal everything until the very end of this movie really. And the fact that it starts off as the mystery of adultery and fidelity, then the mystery of who set Jake up, this imposter? Who hired this imposter? The mystery of we have someone's been murdered. Multiple people have been murdered. Where did this guy drown at the bottom of this riverbed that's bone dry? How did... Hollis Mulray, the head of Water and Power, drowned in Los Angeles in the middle of a drought, as the morgue guy said, the guy at the morgue says, Water in his lungs? He drowned. (laughs) So how did he get salt water in his lungs? And what was in that pond in the back of the Mulray's house that we don't find out until later on? And It's such a great mystery, and then we see the massive corruption of Noah Cross and the power and control he has over Los Angeles, and how he's the most corrupt person there, and and he's the key to this big mystery. Same thing with the mystery of evelyn and this young girl the girlfriend of hollis mulray who was that who was it actually and i love how this great mystery we get the answers in the first 20 minutes 30 minutes really yeah we go in the backyard of the Mulrays' home when when jake goes there and he asks the the gardener what well he doesn't ask him yeah he sees something in the in the pond in the back he almost reaches in to grab it but Miss Mulray comes back from what I'm assuming was riding a horse. She looks like she's in an equestrian attire. And yeah, she JJ she right. yeah. doesn't get to pull out whatever was in the water, not to mention uh, incredible miscommunication when he talks to the gardener and he thinks the gardener says, bad for glass. Yes, bad for glass. When really the gardener was saying bad for grass, and if Jake only asked him to re what he said or come again – he would have realized that this is a saltwater pond, and he would have made the connections to the mystery and probably solved it so much sooner. But you can also maybe contribute that to his experiences in Chinatown. Maybe he has prejudice against Chinese people, and that's why he's not super nice to this gardener until later on when he asks him about the salt water. Because he's the the term, the phrase "bad for glass" doesn't really make too much sense, and so he it would be like. Like, proper, to be like, oh, and what did you, did you say again? Come again? So, it is a kind of like a flaw in Jake right here to not ask him to repeat himself and clear up what exactly he's saying, but he just brushes it off like nothing. And it's a great point, because I wouldn't say maybe he, he wouldn't have solved it immediately, but he would have definitely realized that Hollis was drowned here. Um, but you could also say that if it wasn't for the rest of the investigation, he wouldn't have been able to really put it all together, because... What's really brilliant about this script is how the character initiates everything happening. Because the first act of the film, he's not initiating, he's hired on the job, and he realized he was duped. Now, he could just get that check from Miss Mulray and move on with his life, and can carry on with his PI business. With a pretty nice check of, what, five grand. But what does Jake do? He doesn't like being caught with his pants down. He doesn't like that someone duped him. He doesn't like that he got made for a fool. And so he actively goes out to seek out what exactly is going on, who is responsible for this, and that leads him into the series of events that ends up revealing the ultimate truths of the mystery. And so it's Jake that causes things to happen, causes the story to happen. The f- opening act, the first what, 25 minutes of the film... Is the setup and the big event, and then it's really Jake's decision to carry forward with the story, which is really important for a great screenplay and for a great character arc for them to facilitate the story rather than the story happening to them. I also adore movies and screenplays that only follow the character, the main character. Jake is in every scene, we're always watching him, he's everywhere. We never see interactions of characters without Jake in this entire movie. I love movies that do this, so we're constantly with him. We're watching him watch. We're watching him investigate. We're seeing what he's looking for in clues. We're with him the whole time. We're kind of like backseat passengers to Jake's story. For the most part, we're kind of like looking over his shoulder. We're looking behind him oftentimes. Sometimes we're you know walking with him like great pulling shot. Uh, when he discovers that Hollis Mulray's been drowned or died, and they're pulling his body up, that's one of the rare instances of really being in front of Jake. Usually, we're just behind him, over his shoulder, next to him, things like that. So, I really love movies that pretty much only uh, only follow our main character. Other ones that I can think about: Drive is is Driver in every single shot and every scene in that movie. I think. Um, well, I mean, except for exact like the party. Which party? the The coming home party. He's not like in that room. Well, with he's, them. He's, there, kind yeah, of. he's he's there. Yeah, he's just yeah in the show. environment. Okay, so like he's in the environment. But yeah. That's like another Stopped movie. Stopped you. <laughs> no, you're right. It's he's, good, te- he's technically he's good, there. That's a good point. So like, well, that's... Like, well uh, when uh, when Cranston's killed by. Okay, okay, yes, yeah. that might. All right, yeah, there's a few scenes. It. It, it's close. It's like ninety. And also the pizza shop. Okay, it's, it's close. <laughs> it's close. It's close. It's like ninety-five percent. I'm just saying, it's it's tough to do. I think. Agree. You're in his perspective. Yeah, I think a lot of people try to do it maybe don't pull off as well but i really love following just jake and only his perspective and his point of view or or what we perceive his perspective is it um it informs us developing a connection with the character in a big way if we share every moment with him and we see things not exactly like it's not pov obviously but we're seeing everything through his eyes and nothing's being told to us that the character doesn't know and so that's also a great way to tell a story especially an investigative story if uh If it was written in a different way, we'd be seeing Hollis's scenes, and then we'd see, you know, Evelyn scenes, and then we'd also see Noah Cross scenes without Jake, and it would take away mystery. Well, Well, actually, we do with Jake in the shots, and it adds mystery. Mm-hmm. So we have the shots of him following Hollis Mulray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mulray, yeah. what's he doing? Who's he talk- Who's that boy he's talking to? No, no, so- I'm saying just them without Jake in the area. No, I know. Is what I'm saying. I know, but we're getting that also, yeah. but from his perspective. Yeah. So they're, like, getting away with seeing other characters do actions, but we're doing it from Jake's perspective, but it keeps the mystery because we don't know what they're doing. We don't know what Mulray's doing or saying to that young boy, why he's at all these riverbeds, why he just keeps hanging out at the ocean at these pipelines we don't know why evelyn mulray is at this house with this young girl who was the girlfriend we're trying to figure this out so when they're presenting situations where you have to show what other characters are doing we're still seeing it through jake's eyes and that exact that's exactly why the script works so well because we're learning everything we don't know anything that jake doesn't know which is i think important for a mystery to work and a film that does something similar is zodiac david fincher's film Oh it's, yeah, it's a great. Uh, that's great a, that's a great one where you see the kills but otherwise you don't really know anything and 7 as well works in a similar way where you only know the information that the characters are learning in real time. And that exceed that expounds on the mystery and really prov- provides a great payoff at the end when all is revealed and it, when you think all is revealed Because even when Jake thinks he knows everything and we're on his side, we're like, oh man, it was Evelyn. Salt water. It's gotta be her. And even then, we're still wrong. Jake's still wrong. And then the eventual truth is still yet to be found out. So it just keeps you on the edge of your seat. The thrill, the suspense, just compounds on itself. An excellent exposition whenever we get it and whenever we need it. I think one of the best examples of exposition in this film is for Noah Cross. And... How Jake finds about, out about who he is and also his connection to Hollis Mulray. And then obviously the connection to Evelyn Mulray, who he finds out, obviously, we know is married. You know, asking Mo- Mrs. Mulray what the C stands for on the envelope. I'm just, I'm just a, a nosy guy. It's just who I am. I'm a snoop. It's, it's my maiden name. Cross, he discovers while he's waiting outside the office of Hollis Mulray with the secretary, pestering the secretary basically for information. He's so great at extracting information. This is when the replacement, the deputy uh, department head of Water and Power, has now taken over as the head of the department because this is after Hollis Mulray's death. And Jake's in the office. This, this is the second time he's been there. The first time he's trying to see Hollis Mulray, who he didn't know was dead at the time. And he's going around, he's looking at the portraits and photos all over the wall, and we see the photos of Noah Cross who's this old guy and he's with Hollis Mulray kind of lo- he's got like this Daniel Plainview quality of like I just like feel like I own this place. this is all my land kind of aesthetic and vibe. and f- through the secretary by annoying her, he gets information out of her that will help his investigation so much. finding out that he owns the Department of Water and Power. he owns the water supply of Los Angeles and he owns it with Hollis Mulray and he found this all out from the secretary. And this is before we meet Noah Cross. We don't meet him till later at the Albacore Club when he goes to talk to him. But this is a great mystery about a character who ends up becoming the big antagonist of the entire story. Who are just teased of. We get a little teases of who Noah Cross is. The mysteries, the connections between him and Hollis. And then him and Mrs. And obviously Evelyn, his daughter. Did you ever notice that the uh, secretaries hate Jake in this movie? <laughs> so that secretary at the Department of Water and Power can't stand him. And she she keeps answering his questions, no, yes, yes, and then she like slams her pen down and leaves the room <laughs> to tell her uh, her boss that he's there, and then also the secretary at the library at the library in the valley, who's super annoyed at, at Jake just asking simple questions. Do you have a ruler, <laughs> and he just like glares at him. So I love the secretaries. It's because it's like it's a very minor role, and it's just forgettable, but. Polanski paints an interesting picture by actually having something unique happen with the interactions. It's not just typical, oh yeah, here it is, yep, here's the ruler. Very boring. But he actually adds a lot of interesting qualities to just these tiny characters that really, I think, make this film on rewatches really funny. Because I always think it's hysterical. I laugh at the library scene, and I always laugh at the Department of Water and Power. It's a funny movie. There's some great lines, some great jokes in this movie. And I think it's only possible because it's Jack Nicholson. In 1970s, it was pretty good to be Jack Nicholson. <laughs> this guy was a superstar, global, massive star around the world. And Chinatown was his biggest movie at the time until probably 1980. The Shining blew him up even more. But he was such a, a huge celebrity by then that obviously that's one of the main reasons why everyone saw Shining besides it being an incredible film. But the 1970s, Jack Nicholson in these flashy beautiful suits lit so well the perfect tan the guy just looks incredible in every shot in this movie even when he's getting beat up even when he has this nasty cut on his nose even when he's covered with the massive bandage on his face he still is freaking jack nicholson and also this is a film early filmmaking days where you know he did a pretty dangerous stunt with that water stunt Oh, when it, the first one—that was that yeah. was pretty dangerous. A lot being, of water. Being thrown, thrashed into that iron fence. Um, I feel like that's something that a lot of safety standards would be put into it. But there's no wire. There's no safety team. Like uh, back then, you know, films were—they were they were just they just shot things. They would just film it. You know, he's got to do this. Just have him do it. And he hops the fence really well. Yeah, he well. hops it's the It's fe- like a 15 foot fence. All in one take, just one shot. So it's pretty impressive. In Really putting your body on the line, it, it that's a, it looks pretty dangerous. I would say, and re, like water, people underestimate the power of water, especially a large moving body of water. There's a lot of force there, so he could have gotten hurt, but could have been something in the water, yeah, like a rock that hits him in the face. Yeah, you know? it could have been, could have gone badly, but they did a great job, and to this day. The nose cutting sequence is still... It just looks perfect. It doesn't look bad. It just, it looks like he's really cutting him in the nose. Oh, it looks incredible, dude. Yeah, and Polanski's actually the actor who's playing the small Frenchman. Hey, kitty cat. Yeah, hey, kitty cat. That's actually Polanski. But the, the slice, the splatter of blood spray... It looks fantastic. And every time I watch it, I'm like, okay, how they do it? How they do it. They actually I, I actually can explain yeah, it. Yeah, please. So the blade has basically a swivel. Uh-huh. So or it just looks like an ordinary blade without any pressure being applied. But when you put it like put pressure against the edge of it, the blade goes inside of itself. And then obviously they had some fake blood pop out at the same time. So when he swipes, he's really swiping. He puts that freaking it's a one shot. It's yeah. a one take. Puts the knife in his nose, then swipes sideways. It looks like it goes directly through his nose, but it had a little swivel, and it just cleanly, smoothly goes through and just fake blood. Perfect. It's one of the best practical shots when it comes to, like, gore I've ever seen. It's very subtle and very small in terms of, like, obviously things we've seen in other famous films regarding a moment of gore or, you know, tearing through flesh or whatever, but this is one that's still just, like, it looks real, and they did a terrific job. Just a simple... Just a two shot with the two actors and it's just like it's great. I and, love it. And the wound means a lot. Like why yeah. why does Town and Polanski have this character cut JJ's nose? Why cut Jake's nose? It's because he's snooping around he's where sniffing he around. he's sniffing around. He's sniffing around too much. It's a metaphor. It's a great shot. Great thematic element to the character, and he's getting in—he's ruffling the wrong feathers. He better keep his nose out of people's businesses. So we're gonna take your nose to make you learn a lesson. And then just cutting to him in the office with just the huge um, bandage on his nose is just great. And the, well, first we see the yeah, reactions, yeah, about the other reac- people, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it, him having that patched-up nose with the gauze on his nose—it's just—it's an iconic character look. You know what I mean? You mentioned the suits and the great tan and everything, but uh, Giddys with obviously with the suit on, and then having the gauze taped on his nose, in film history, it is an absolute, legendary, iconic look of a character. It's gonna be my Halloween costume this year. That would be great! Yeah, yeah. That's a great costume. I hope people get it. Well, I'm sure they will now. No, they'll get it, yeah. Just keep ripping cigarettes the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it try is to, the 70s. Try to thin my hair out a little bit up top. <laughs> it still looks good, man. I mean, Jack's been always been able to pull off. I mean, he's hardly had any hair ever on <laughs> top, yeah, yeah. but He still pulls it off. He's got this, He's just too cool and confident. He's, he's got it. Jack has always, aside from his personality, he's always had just... He's got a very striking face. You know what I mean? The camera loves him. And his the expressions he can pull from his face just really... They light up the screen. And it's just... I'm sure every filmmaker, it was just a joy photographing him. I think it's not only... I think it's more, obviously the camera loves Jack but yeah. I think more Jack loves the camera oh yeah I think that's also what's part of it as well yeah I'm, he loves it atten- he always loved it that's why he's perfect yeah. as Jake yeah. Giddis. no one else could have done it like this and just bringing the vanity and confidence to the character just makes this film so special in mm-hmm. these characters the characters are incredible I mean that's that's one of the best parts of it but also the thing with Chinatown how we were talking about how people kind of forget about it and Obviously, the shadow of the great films, other great films from the 70s have kind of kept it hidden or in the shadows, but also the controversy around Roman Polanski has also added kind of this weird reflection of reality and terrible things. And also at the same time the story was being written and made, we're at the height of Watergate. In the 1970s with Richard Nixon and the scandal of the spying on presidential campaign. So that was also another reflection of corruption in American culture and in Western civilization that was massive and part of everything that's going on. And, of course, the influence of the real water wars. So this film, whether you're talking about it from the story itself or the history of the film, it is a reflection of reality, which I think adds so much of like a mystical quality to it. And But it, it, is, it is a film and we've talked about it a bunch of times how it seems as though classic films, older films they are they're being seen less and less by newer generations and this is a film that's an example of that I mean it, ha- it has half as many reviews on Letterboxd as Evil Dead Rise does That's crazy but a lot of people watch this episode because we told everyone we were covering that's it. That's awesome. And a lot of them it was their first time viewing. So. I really hope that I just really hope that films like this, because this is a film when I was a teenager, and going to film school, 19, 20 years old, it was a film I learned a lot about, and then you watch it, and it's a movie that made me realize the greatness of of a film, and how a film can be really, like, perfect, and this is an example of a, a pitch-perfect movie, every aspect of it, from the top-of-the-line crew to the bottom-of-the-line crew, it really is, without a doubt, one of the greatest films ever made. What a picture. What a picture. <laughs> <laughs> and I really just hope that... And, and this is a movie that influenced so many movies after it. Obviously, it, it is a reflection of the film noir genre, which became famous in the 40s and 50s. But not just that aspect, but the screenplay and the uh, what happens in the film in terms of the story... It has been duplicated, replicated, built upon, um, ripped off time and time again, not just the mystery murder investigation aspects, but like uh, dialogue sequences or or the way a scene is approached. And this is a film that had such a huge impact on cinema, like many films of the 70s did. And I just hope that younger generations seek out older films like this to watch it because it... It has a great rating in Letterboxd, four point two, excellent rating. But it only has twenty seven thousand reviews. And so Evil Dead Rise has been out for a week and a half and it already has double that. And so that's the thing where I just hope that people if they're getting into film and they're learning more they want to learn more about movies, go to the classics, go to the sixties, go to the seventies. Or the past. That's really where cinema was at its height in a lot of ways not not technology-wise obviously but in terms of storytelling and the approach to filmmaking and the approach to acting it's really where things transformed starting in the 60s and then just blew up in the 70s and we got really some of the greatest filmmaking of all time in that era i just hope that old movies like this aren't forget forgotten in the future it's what we're here for man yeah And chinatown has so many layers it demands multiple multiple watches and you see new things every time you watch this film you get hints of clues that you never noticed before that were there in plain sight that just like you wish Jake could have seen or noticed right away and you know it this whole film it's like an onion layers getting peeled one at a time layer after layer after layer until there's this grand mystery, and like you said earlier, inevitability. You can't do anything about it, and life goes on, and evil prevails. It's a dark ending. And-, yeah, and it also has it has one of the greatest twists of all time, when Evelyn reveals that she is both the girl's sister and mother. Unbelievable twist. Like, an all-timer. Unpredictable. Nobody saw that coming. And it's so shocking and disturbing. But also, it's so many, it's so tragic. Uh, you see especially when Evelyn reveals that she was only 15 you just it's so deeply impactful and and horrible and then doesn't end there we get the horrific conclusion of her death and it's just such a tragic film it really takes a turn and it's so powerful and when this movie ends even i've even though I've watched it so many times when the credits roll I'm always just like oh my this it's um it's unbelievable it's so impactful makes you really think about it and and reflect on it and it it really is an unforgettable conclusion that this third act is really just so shocking there's so many layers to the tragedy not only does noah cross win he gets everything he wanted obviously he lost his daughter evelyn but he hasn't considered evelyn his daughter for years he says at least i'm trying to be with the one daughter that i have left that's the daughter that's evelyn's daughter and his daughter as well so noah cross wins because he gets her at the end of the film, he gets her, walks away, takes his daughter to go and be. He wins because the conspiracy does not get any legs and no one cares. All they care about is now the death of Evelyn Cross, or Evelyn Mulray now, and that situation. So Noah Cross gets away. He's going to get his deal done. He's going to get control of the valley and control of the water and become the future of Los Angeles. The future, Mr. Giddies. The but future. Not, but not only does he win, and evil prevails, but J.J. Gittis, Jake facilitates it he's the one that brought him to Chinatown why did he bring him to Chinatown obviously he's held at gunpoint but his hubris and his arrogance makes him think that I can bring Noah Cross down by myself I'm involving the police in this situation in this crazy scheme that I'm improvising right now to get to Chinatown I'm gonna get Noah Cross arrested they're gonna believe my side of the story I've uncovered everything I'm helping Evelyn. I'm getting her out of this, out of the country. I have her. I've, I got a ride for her to get to Mexico. I'm gonna be the big hero. I'm gonna I, do the I, right thing. I've got thing. this whole thing. Yeah. He thinks he can take down Noah Cross on his own by showing up at the Mulray's house, saying he has the daughter. He doesn't think he doesn't think Noah Cross is gonna show up with someone with a gun. He's not gonna threaten him. So Jake facilitates evil to prevail. He could help Evelyn get to Mexico on his own. He could drive her to Mexico by herself. But he wants to be the hero. He wants to make the headlines, even though he says he doesn't care about the headlines when he's in the barbershop. He really does care about the headlines. It's just when someone criticizes it, he gets upset about it. But Jake, he creates Chinatown 2.0. He's the cause of his failure, but also back to the source of his bad luck in Chinatown, where once before he got involved with a woman in a case and she got hurt because of, get, because of him. Evelyn Mulray has died because Jake Giddis. Thought he could save the day again in Chinatown. Same thing happened. Let's head into our intermission, though, before we get more involved in Chinatown. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of membership, and every single tier gets access to two weekly bonus episodes of our show. You get access to a normal bonus episode, as well as... The weekly chat every week, which is exclusively on Patreon. You all have access to it. We have tiers in the $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100 range. Each tier comes with incredible perks. Don't miss out on supporting our show as well as getting a ton of bonus content. Thank you, everyone around the world, for supporting us on Patreon. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to their website and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. They have a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show in their poster library as well as Chinatown. If there's a movie lover in your life, it's a best skip you can get them. And if you love movies, you want to decorate your place with a bunch of movie memorabilia, MoviePosters.com is the best place to get posters. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com today. All right, Anthony, let's get into our intermission for our episode on Chinatown. You ready? I'm ready. Let's start with the movie quote competition. You ready? I'm not ready. You're not ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Wall Street. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Easy peasy. Here's my quote. It's from a fan. It is from... One second... One second, hold, hold please, hold please, local hero on Instagram. I make 31,000 a year and I've got a home and I'm not about to throw it away on a punk like you. But someday when you're out of here and you've forgotten all about this place and they've forgotten all about you and you're wrapped up in your pathetic life, I'm gonna be there. Can you say it one more time? I make 31,000 a year and I've got a home and I'm not about to throw it away on a punk like you. But someday when you're out of here and you've forgotten all about this place And they've forgotten about you, and you're wrapped up in your pathetic life. I'm going to be there. That's right, and I'm going to kick the living shit out of you, man. I'm going to knock your dick in the dirt. You forgot about that. It sounds super familiar, but I don't know. It's from The Breakfast Club. Uh, Ah, Told you you'd stump him. Stump me. All right. Guess this movie release year. The Ninth Gate. 1998. 1999! Uh. Ah! Love that movie. It's such a good one. Another Polanski one. Yes, sir. Johnny Depp. Johnny Dizzle. Guess this. Demons. <laughs> and Angels. Guess this movie release year. Amores Peros. 1988. 2000. <laughs> I didn't even hear what you said, honestly. <gasps> the Iñárritu movie. Oh, Amores. Yeah, Amores Peros. Oh, gotcha. I thought you said pedals. <laughs> I was just straight up guessing. It did not say pedals. So it's not like petals. How about you ask me to repeat myself next time? I'm like Jake Gittes, man. <laughs> Bad for glass. <laughs> movie pop quiz time. What Roman Polanski film won the Palme d'Or at Cannes? Good question. I'm going to go with The Pianist. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Great movie. Who directed Colin Farrell in Alexander? Who did make Alexander? Who's responsible for that? <laughs> is, <it, laughs> is it Oliver Stone? Yeah, ah! Oliver Stone. Good <laughs> <laughs> guess. Nice job. I didn't think you'd get that. <laughs> Me neither. That was, a, that was a tough one. Listen, this is a shot in the deck, but you wouldn't happen to be pre-law. Good <laughs> a, a reference. reference, bro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um... What's your streaming? Re- oh, my streaming recommendation for this? Wait, no, we got haters. What we got? We got some haters. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead. I think. Who we, we, got. we got some haters. Who we got? We always got haters. We got some good ones. <clears throat> all right, Enriquez PJ wrote, "Y'all actually going to do research on these movies or just IMDb them unsubscribed?" <laughs> <laughs> People say that all the time on TikTok. Oh man, In these the- guys just like read off the IMDb <laughs> list. <laughs> Uh, the Evil Dead clip talking about Sam Raimi's car. Uh, and you said that they painted the chainsaw to satisfy the requirement. Didn't satisfy me. Space Giraffe wrote, Satisfy requirement, my ass. Unsubscribed! <laughs> exactly, dude. Exa- Why can't you put the car in there? Why not? I don't know, man. Just put it in the fuck. You're in a parking garage. I don't know, Just man. put it in the corner. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, <laughs> just put it there. Oh, we couldn't find a spot to put it in the movie. You're in a fucking parking garage. <laughs> Chad Battles wrote, L. Fanning over Anya Taylor Joy. Split Amsterdam to Northman, Peaky Blinders, Queen's Gambit last night in Soho. Biggest snub since Saving Private Ryan lost to Shakespeare in Love. Unsubscribed. She's great. She's great, but I think L. has more pull as, like, yeah. She's I'd, almost there, man. Yeah, we put her at 11, man. Yeah, it's, 12. Or 12 yeah. It's tough. It's a tough, tough list to make. It's tough. It's tough, it's tough list. Because then who are you going to cut from our top 10? L. Fanning for you, but. I wouldn't cut L. No, for, for, oh, yeah, yeah, for yeah. Our, yeah. our listener. Or Unsubscriber, but respect your opinion, man. <laughs> Huge Anya Taylor Joy fan. Jack on YouTube wrote, "Bro, I'm just laughing at Florence Pugh's head being stuck in the corner of the screen during the intro of this episode, and I genuinely don't even know why I find that funny." Unsubscribe for making me think I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Because I... you you had like a banner okay, of all yeah, the of, actresses, of woman, yeah. In their their her head was like in the bottom corner, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I didn't mess the banner up, did I? <laughs> no, no, no. This is uh, not a hater, but just a really great comment. It is, it is technically an unsubscribed comment, so I just wanted to read it. From Ray, Ryan Desmond, I have to say, there aren't a lot of people I'd rather listen to discuss film than YouTube. Raiders of the Lost podcast is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me, as well as being the greatest thing that's ever happened to mankind. <laughs> History will, will remember this podcast, along with The Birth of Christ... And whenever Cheetos were invented, <laughs> I look forward to spending the rest of my life listening to this podcast and wishing nothing but the best for this thing's future. I'll be right there with you guys every step of the way as we grow and bloom together unsubscribe. Thanks, Thanks Ryan. Ryan. Jinx. Jinx. <laughs> Cheetos and J. Christ. Dudes, Flaming Hot Cheetos are on another level. Like, like Iconic things. It's the, I, it's the best snack. Flaming Hot Cheetos, number one. My body does not like him the next day. That's all I'll say. (laughs) You have any more? (laughs) That's it, yeah. My streaming recommendation for this episode is Boogie Nights on Hulu. Just got put there for May 2023. It's one of Paul Thomas Anderson's best films. Highly recommend checking it out if you haven't seen it or just revisiting. Bro, I got Talented Mr. Ripley for my streaming rec. We watched it last week. time. Oh, my God, it's so what good. A, it's, what a what picture. A picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it gets better every time I watch it. It's so good. Like They don't make movies like that anymore, man. It's great. Man. What is a great movie. Fucking brilliant movie. <laughs> so good. Dicky Dinky, dinky, dinky. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do it soon. We're going to do it soon. We're also going to do more movies from the 90s. And we're, you're going to see a lot more classic films in our episodes, as well as still plenty of films that are coming out um, week by week. But we're gonna do a lot more films that we grew up loving, and a lot more films that we have come to grow and love by rewatching them from the past. And well, uh, there's so many great movies in the '90s we haven't touched yet. So expect more episodes like this one. Now let's get back into Chinatown. I like how you say evil prevails because Noah Cross is evil. He is a vile human being, and one of the one of the most clear indicators of this is and it has nothing to do with his schemes or anything. But it has everything to do with this line, this just this one line he says to, to Jake at uh, at Evelyn's house in the last act of the film. And he tells Jake, people are capable of pretty much anything under the right circumstances. He's So he's defending himself for having intercourse with his own daughter. That's what that line is for. And to defend that is such a terrible, reprehensible thing to say. Noah Cross truly is evil. And this movie works so well superficially you could say just on the surface as well as when you watch it a second and third time if you don't pick up on the complexities and really understand what this movie's about because then you really get the film then you really understand why it's a masterpiece it's one of those movies first time viewings first time i saw it i was like oh my god that was incredible but also i don't completely get the whole thing the whole picture yet second third fourth fifth viewings now I get everything that's going on. It's operating on so many levels. So, like maybe if you don't have the capacity to fully grasp everything that's happening on every level of the film, it still works on the surface as a great film mystery noir. It has all the elements you need of a, a detective that you really like, you're rooting for, a potential femme fatale that turns up out being the hero the hero and villain, as well as another great antagonist and great villain, great cinematography, incredible wardrobe and style location cinematography it all works just on a superficial surface level but then it works even better underneath the surface i think fight club's a great example of that for a lot of people the opposite they just see it on the surface they don't see how great it is underneath the surface the subtext yes the the subtext beneath it and where chinatown works on both fronts uh, yeah. brilliantly and i think it's still extremely relevant because the idea of water uh, being at risk is so relevant to the day especially in in la where you know we've We've been in a drought, like a, an actual, like they call it a drought for what, since we've been here. Well, the thing with L.A., it's yeah. a desert. Yeah. I it's, mean, yeah. It's, a, it's a year-round drought. Yeah. But it, the thing is, water is, and always has been, always will be, a extremely valuable resource. And the people who control that, especially in this film, represent basically the control of society. And I, it's definitely possible that in the future not too far future water will could become scarce and become even more um rare of an of a resource that the average person may not be able to get because all around the world and this moment i mean there are a billion people who don't have access to clean water we do because we're lucky to live in uh, this country but so many people a reality of their lives is not having water and so i think that this movie poses that risk of Uh, if the water doesn't belong to the public, and the idea that maybe there is a future where there won't be enough water, and I think this movie is a precursor for that. And just the subtle clues, the water's constantly in the background, in the backdrop. We have the pond at the Mulray's house, the reservoirs, Echo Park there. Echo Park Lake. Jake is following the water, and it's... He's got water on the mine. (laughs) (laughs) And Noah Cross's plan, it's so evil... But it's genius. His plan is to take all the water from the farmers in the valley so that they their land dies and they have to sell their farms at pennies on the dollar. You and buy then, all the land. And then yeah. Noah buys it up with all these people who are either dead or just or in rest homes, as they used to be called. That... Excuse me, miss. Do you know that you're a very wealthy person? <laughs> no. You own, a fi- you own a lot of land. Wow, these people own 50,000 acres, buy up all the land in people's names who have no idea what's going on. And then turn that land into fruitful farmland as well as property land for homes and apartments and everything. So his plan is brilliant in doing it all because he has the control of water under his thumb. Hollis Mulray, even though at the first act of the film, we're kind of skeptical of him because we believe that he's part of infidelity. We think he's cheating on his wife, which he never was. He was not cheating on his wife. He was a good guy. He was a decent man. He's a decent man who who fell under the spell of Noah Cross at first, where he built that dam under pressure from Noah Cross, which burst and broke, and 500 people lost their lives. And that's why at that opening council meeting, he says, I won't build it, I won't make the same mistake twice, because Noah Cross is really trying to get him to build that dam. So now he's turned him down, and then obviously Hollis Mulray finds out about everything that Noah Cross is trying to do. That's why he gets killed. But he was a good guy. He was not cheating on his wife. The young girl was. I'm sure he knew the situation. He he knew it wasn't his daughter. His stepdaughter. Step his <laughs> stepdaughter. Step niece. Stepdaughter. In a terrible way. And he was a good person. But yeah. the move. The script is so brilliant where you think he's a nefarious guy until the third act, we really understand who he was. Just another victim. And Noah Cross, he really does represent the real people in power. And it doesn't matter who the governor is. It doesn't matter who who the president is. I think that you know people i think everybody kind of has the understands the fact that there are people who really are in control of things and they're the people that own everything the people that own all the land They're the people that own all the wealth those are the real people that control things no matter who is elected to government offices and so i think noah cross is a prime example of a metaphor for that where the city and city authorities city officials They don't have the power. Noah Cross is the person with the real power. Well, he, yeah, Noah Cross is the real person with the real power. And what he does to Hollis Mulray is obviously form this partnership with them early on. He gives Mulray control of the water supply, which they were just going to put in a reservoir and they would lose 70 to 80% of it. But Mulray, being a genius engineer and very intelligent person, ends up putting it in in natural reservoirs you could say where it rests on the crust of the earth and naturally they only lose 20 percent of the water and so, help build the city exactly yeah. like like cross says to Jake Giddes Hollis Mulray built Los Angeles and he made me a fortune exactly yeah so he's connected to, they're connected at the hip and that's why he ends up killing Mulray because he doesn't go through with the dam then the he gets one. someone in power who can do the dam exactly that was, that, that was man <laughs> this movie's so good <laughs> it's really incredible and I mean like, it was a movie, this is a movie that represents, I think people might watch it if they've never seen it before. Not anyone who listens to the show, but you know, but I think people who maybe they want to give classic films a shot, but they might have a bad attitude towards it, where they might watch this movie and be like, oh, I've seen this a hundred times, but this is like the first one to do it. Like, well, I remember we did a Bourne episode and someone wrote in the in a comment, same action music and it's like well born was the first one to do that kind of music for an action movie um it's important to understand that like the tropes of our day they are built upon the original genius of these older storytellers and the tr- the tropes became tropes because they were done so expertly in the first instances like this one you know what i mean so that's another reason why i mean. So many aspects of modern cinema, especially in the crime genre, investigative genre, uh, built upon a movie like Chinatown, and just great characters, man. Jay yeah. Jake Giddis is one of my all-time favorite characters, and he's such a gray area. Exactly, yeah. like he's he's a good guy. He's trying to be. He's, he wants to be a good person. He's a lot of flaws, but he he does have a ton of flaws. And one of them we've been talking about is vanity, his hubris, his arrogance. He's got some misogyny in him, he's got some racism in him. He he is not a he's not the kind of hero that you'll see nowadays in Hollywood. He gets you know involved I mean? with women every time he does yeah. a case, but he's trying to do the right thing. Yeah. But because he has so much arrogance and hubris and vanity, he can't just do the right thing. He has to also be the big hero and save the day and finally yeah. has a case worth doing. And but that's why I, I love him so much and he's a perfect PI. He's think, got the finesse. Uh, yeah. I think he was looking for something to fight for. As well. You know what I mean? Being stuck in the PI business, losing his career. So maybe he was looking for something to really believe in again. And also, I mean, he's falling for Miss Mulray. You can assume they're falling for each other. He's a loner. This guy outside of his job has no relationships. We go to his apartment one time, his home. What's he doing? He's by himself. He puts on those fancy pajamas. You're just like, this guy's so full of himself. And I love it. I love every second of it. Yeah. Can't get a moment of peace, but he's very he's a lonely person outside of his PI work. And that's why he just I think you assume he just gets involved with his PI work constantly when it comes to relationships. I also think that he's a person he he doesn't like what he does. And that's why he gets so defensive in the barbershop when that uh, other customer calls him out for, you know, you you've, you certainly have an interesting way of making a living. And then he gets so upset with the guy. He's like, hey, I make an honest living, living pal, just like anybody. I'm not kicking people out yeah. of their homes like you at the mortgage so department. To react that um, negatively and that angrily clearly shows that he's not happy about what he does. I'm sure, like I said, he likes the money. Yeah. gets paid really well. He's got staff. He's got everything. He's got offices. He's $35 a respect. day. Yeah, plus yeah. expenses and a bonus if he finds results. Now, he's getting sick of j- just being adultery and infidelity. That's, like we said, we've been talking about why he's so enticed by this case. And obviously, like you said, he got caught with his pants down. Usually, he's the one doing that on the opposite side. Mm-hmm. He wants to find out what's really going on. He got duped. He doesn't like that. Yeah. So, what the hell is going on? So, and amazing character. But he's a great PI, too, at the, at the same time. if you If you take away the bad traits, he's great. At thinking on his feet he's got the finesse that he's trying to tell I think it's Barney's like listen this this is what you got this job requires a little finesse Jake has that he'll get in these high balcony odd places for the perfect photo angle he knows the the stopwatch technique about putting it under the tire things like that But as I will well as- say he is not great in a fight it's something that you don't you you, you won't see oftentimes in uh, as strong leading men in a Hollywood movie he's terrible in a fight he gets beat up a couple of times He was about to get shot outside the nursing home, but Evelyn pulled up with the car and rescued him. So he's a person where uh, also getting the better of him outside the water reservoir when he gets his nose sliced off. So if he is put into a bad confrontation, he's probably not going to get out without getting beat up or hurt in in some way. Let me defend my guy, Jake, right now. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, he beats the crap out of Moleville outside the rest home. He gets the upper hand on Moleville, he comes out, beats the piss out of him. He beats him up big time, All right, Big time. He also has a gun pointed at him outside the uh, the Oaks Reservoir. What are you gonna do, fight a guy with a gun? Yeah. So he just obviously gets beat up, he just gets his nose sliced, because someone's got a gun on him. Also, when he gets (laughs) his ass kicked at the Orange Grove, it's one against four. What do you want him to do? He does a pretty good job. He's getting all beat right. with a cane, with a crutch. He beats some yeah. of them up. He does, yeah. But he gets knocked out. He gets yeah. his ass kicked. But it's one against four. Okay. So put some respect on my guy Jake's name. <laughs> he's good in the fight. All right. One on one, he's fine. He beat the fuck out of Mulville. That's true. That's true. That's but that's he true. did. He did rush Mulville. But I feel like it's uh These are kind of these are sequences we would see like a big action scene. You know what I mean? And sometimes it's better when the guy the the hero gets gets defeated real easily or quickly or uh it doesn't have to be like not saying there's a problem with John Wick, but I feel like people might have the tendency to go John Wick route and when it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense, you know what I mean? Or the born route just, just for, for the action. Out. Well the thing why it works so well in this movie. Is because it's realistic. Yeah. Of course. If you're going to get in five fights, you're probably going to lose most exactly. of them, especially if it's yeah. four on one or people have guns and you don't because he doesn't carry weapons. That's the mm-hmm. thing about Jake. doesn't carry weapons. But also. I don't think a PI legally could at that a, time. Well, it depends. At on that the, time. Yeah, maybe not, I but it depends so, on the yeah. state right now. Uh-huh. If you can. Well, no, yeah, spirit. now. You, yeah. And now. But I'm saying usually as for law enforcement. But it also works so well in this movie because it showcases how jake has these bursts of being in control and having no control being in control having no control so before he well gets, yeah yeah when he hits Evelyn so w- before he gets beat up at well, yeah that's an example too so but at the Orange Grove for example he's sitting in his car smoking a cigarette confident <laughs> I know what's going on I'm solving this stuff I was just at the records I ripped that stuff up I'm figuring stuff out right now man and now I'm gonna get my ass kicked I get shot at by a shotgun and these guys are chasing me on horseback Orange yeah, Grove so he goes from having an extreme confidence and control over what he thinks is his investigation and evidence and he's gotta uncover even more truths to now. Getting knocked unconscious and getting his butt kicked. The Evelyn situation. Horrible it, temper. Yeah, it's the same thing I was talking about earlier with the power of who has the truth has the power and the control. Now he he slaps Evelyn around a few times, especially when he at first she told him outside the house that she's my sister. Yeah. If and you Jake, seen, yeah. yeah. And Jake ate it up. He's like, all right, whatever, but we're i I'll let he's you know. He's like for no now. big deal. Yeah. But then he goes back to the house, he finds the girl again, and she says, She's my daughter. Like, tell me the truth. She's my sister, slap. She's my daughter, slap. This was also Faye Dunaway's idea to get slapped around. Mm -hmm. So she thought the scene wasn't working, and Faye Dunaway told Jack in annoyance about how the scene wasn't working too well, like, just slap me. Just start Mm -hmm. slapping me. So it was actually her idea to get hit in the scene. Okay. And so, like you said, he loses his temper. He has no control. He thinks he has the control. He thinks he has the truth, and he wants the truth, slapping her around. And then she gets the upper hand by fully revealing the truth. And what happens to Jake... He becomes so defeated, not defeated, but docile. And also, I will do anything to protect you at this moment. Yeah. And I, I think that the slapping scene is an instance where I said earlier where just because the person is the lead character of the Hollywood movie and the essential hero of the story, what works so well at this film is that he is so flawed and he can be a decent person, but then he can also be a terrible person. And that's what fa- is the complexity of the character – where he's someone who can tell a good joke and put his life on the line to maybe try to make this city a better place but then also he'll hit a woman out of out of his temper so he is not uh through on through and through a good person that's what i think makes the film so interesting and films like this that were generally being made back then you won't see that nowadays obviously but i just think it's it's not so cut and dry And just because he's the hero doesn't mean he's a true, like, hero and an upstanding human being. You know, he is an extremely flawed individual with a lot of problems. Another great example of the control shift is when he first goes to Mulray's office before he knows Mulray's dead. And he's looking for Mulray, and he goes in there, and the secretary goes to get the deputy of the DWP. And while he's in Mulray's office, he's, like, going through drawers and stuff like that, and he finds the a clue in that book of the blueprints of the dam. It says 7 p.m. Oaks Reservoir, yeah. and that's where he goes later on. And then before he leaves, he goes in the deputy's office, and he says, "Before he leaves, Do you mind if I grab a couple of your cards in case I can't get in, in touch with with uh, Mulray?" Mm-hmm. Help yourself. He takes like five of the cards. He uses that business card to pose as the deputy at that reservoir where they discovered Hollis's body in the water and are pulling him up. And then when he goes to Oak's Reservoir, again, he found this clue, I got it. I got a lead, I'm in control, I have some power, but he loses the power immediately when he gets pushed by the water, the gunshots, and then nose cut. So yeah. like, constant shift of control and power for Jake Giddis, the whole film. And I, there's something about, especially mystery films pre-internet and pre-smartphones, where the character has to do so much legwork to figure things out. I just prefer it because a movie like this, it would have to change drastically if something like smartphones were involved, like it wouldn't work. You'd have to rewrite the whole thing. Um, And so I really love older movies pre-internet and -um, pre-technology because it allowed for a lot more freedom and control of the story. And you can really do more with the characters, whereas a lot of problems can be solved just from a google search or like looking something up online not to say that that doesn't there aren't films like that that do a phenomenal job like girl the dragon tattoo is a great example of one but i just love movies before this technology where if a character had to figure things out they had to go to they had to physically drive to this place they had to actually ask people they had to dig and and rifle through old documents and newspaper articles and and actually go places to figure things out. And I love that in these older movies. That's that's one of the reasons why I like older movies. And Evelyn is such a great character too because we don't really understand her until the end of the film. And she's so back and forth of, is she innocent? Is she guilty? Is she hiding something? She's definitely hiding something. How much is she hiding? Does she know what happened? And really, it's not until the third act we understand what's going on. And I think that... Once you see this film and then you watch it a second time, Faye Dunaway's performance is incredibly nuanced, complex. She is terrific in this movie. She doesn't get talked enough about, I think, in this movie because, obviously, Jack is Jack, and Jake Gitt is such a memorable, memorable character. But I think Evelyn is so good, and I think Faye did an incredible job. And, again, when you watch it for the second time or you know what happens to her and you know the truth— and you watch it again from the beginning, and you know these things going in, and you're watching these subtle things she's doing on camera. Incredible performance. Yeah, in the early scenes, she's just portraying that conflict inside and, and clearly trying to hide it And when she's in front of Giddys, And it's really a phenomenal performance, and the the subtle nature of it is its strength. It's so well written, too. Yeah. Even things like lying to the police with Jake to get away out of the situation because she doesn't want anything to get out because— what she's trying to do is hide and protect her daughter and be with her daughter because at first for the for her early years after she gave birth she was hiding from her daughter she didn't want to see her but now she wants nothing but to be with her and also get her daughter away from noah cross and you can argue and assume that because with when hollis mulray was alive they were able to do that but now that mulray's dead there's really no one to protect yeah. uh, evelyn from noah exactly and and cross would have gotten the daughter no matter what the only way to was to escape to a different country and if they there was no way to overpower noah cross because he he held all the cards and he had everybody in his pocket so there was really no way to win and i love the way she acts and the character acts whenever her father's brought up whenever she hears his name or jake brings up your daughter or i had lunch with your daughter i mean with your father this Mm. morning i had breakfast and she almost can't speak every time and you're wondering is it because she's trying not to lie or is she just so horrified every time she hears his name or thinks of her father, which is probably the case yeah, instead? Yeah, I would say latter for more. Yeah. More more so, for so sure. it's just a really terrific performance all around for yeah. every actor in this film. Yeah, I mean, they were two of the best of their time, both of them, to be in this one movie is great. And they, their chemistry is really terrific. But if you haven't seen this, you got to check it out. You got to get on it. Got to get on get it. On it. On it, for sure. You got anything else on The Great Chinatown? I love it. It's great. <laughs> you love it. I, let me pull up some some fun facts. Got some fun facts. Yeah, bro? Like, give me give me one sec. Yeah, let me get them in. Let me get the docs. Get those fun documents out. Um, so I brought up earlier how John Houston's daughter Angelica Houston, the incredible actress, was dating Jack Nicholson at the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the times she visited set was the sequence where J- Jake and Noah are having their lunch or breakfast with the fish, <laughs> and John Houston actually says the line. Are you sleeping with my daughter or have you slept with my daughter? And so she's on set uh-huh. in the scene he's saying that to her it's really great. it's really his daughter which is pretty <laughs> damn funny. <laughs> That's funny. What else we got? Okay, so screenwriter Robert Town was originally offered $125,000 to write a screenplay for The Great Gatsby, but Town felt that he could do better, couldn't do better than the F Scott Fitzgerald novel and accepted instead $25,000 to write his own story chinatown instead yeah ironically they just they made it right after this with uh redford at one point roman polanski and jack nicholson got into such a heated argument that polancy polanski smashed nicholson's portable television with a mop nicholson used to use the television to watch the los angeles lakers Lakers. (laughs) basketball games and kept stalling shooting (laughs) oh my god what a fanatic (laughs) super funny (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and also Faye Dunaway and Roman Polanski were notorious for their on set arguments as well mm-hmm. just quite a bit but I mean hey sometimes that's what you need for these incredible movies to get made yeah some some people are just very disagreeable and you have to do your best to work with them well thank you so much for tuning into this episode on you're not disagreeable sometimes, sometimes. the sometimes. incredible <laughs> film Chinatown we hope that this episode made you revisit it and maybe check out some more films from the past Maybe in the nineteen seventies, maybe in Nicholson or Dunaway and Polanski's catalog, because they've made incredible movies throughout the years. Thanks so much for tuning in around the world. Don't forget to become a patron today at patreon.com/slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. It's the best way to support the show. Take care, everybody. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keane, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin. Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagan. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.